0: Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 44th presentation on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the 133 talks prepared and delivered by Pope John Paul II between the years 1979 and 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. The Heart, Accused or Called? During our many Wednesday meetings, we analyzed in detail the words in the Sermon on the Mount in which Christ addresses the human heart. We now realize that his words are demanding. Christ says, you have heard that it was said, 'You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her in a reductive way has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter five verses twenty seven and twenty eight. Such a reference to the heart throws light on the dimension of human interiority, the dimension of the inner man proper to ethics, and even more to the theology of the body. The reductive desire that springs up in the sphere of the concupiscence of the flesh is at one and the same time an inner and a theological reality that is in some way experienced by every historical man. It is precisely this man, even if he does not know Christ's words, who continually asks this question about his own heart. Christ's words make this question particularly explicit. Is the heart accused or called to the good. This is the question we will consider now toward the end of our reflections and analysis about the statement in the gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Connected with this concise and categorical statement so pregnant with theological, anthropological, and ethical content, a second question goes hand in hand with it. A more practical question How can and should someone act who accepts Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, who accepts the ethos of the gospel, and who accepts it particularly in this area? This person finds in the reflections carried out so far the answer, at least the indirect answer, to the two questions. How can he act, that is, on what can he count in his Innermost being at the source of his interior and exterior acts, and further, how should he act? That is, how do the values recognized in accord with the scale revealed in the Sermon on the Mount constitute a duty of his will and of his heart, of his desires and of his choices? In what way do they oblige him in action and behavior if, once they are accepted through knowledge, they commit him already in thought and in some way in feeling? These questions are significant for human praxis, and they indicate an organic link between praxis itself and ethos. A living morality is always the ethos of human praxis. One can answer these questions in different ways both in the past and today. In fact, people have been and are giving various answers. An abundant literature confirms this point. Beyond the answers that we find in this literature, one should take into account the unlimited number of answers given by concrete human beings on their own account. Answers repeatedly given by the conscience— the moral awareness and sensibility of every human being in his or her life. In this area, there is a continual interpenetration of ethos and praxis. Here, one sees the life, not merely a theoretical life, lived by the individual principles, that is, by the norms of morality with their motives, elaborated and popularized by moralists, but also elaborated, certainly not without connection with the work of moralists and scholars, by individual persons as direct authors and subjects of real morality, as co-authors of their history, on which the level of morality itself, its progress or decadence, depends. In all of this, everywhere and always, historical man reconfirms himself as the one to whom Christ once spoke, announcing the good news of the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount." in which, among others, he spoke the words we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The statement in Matthew is stupendously concise in comparison with everything written on this topic in world literature. Its power in the history of ethos, perhaps, lies in this. At the same time, one must realize that the history of ethos runs in a riverbed with many forms in which individual currents approach each other and flow apart. Historical man always evaluates his own heart in his own way, just as he also judges his own body. And in this way, he passes from the pole of pessimism to the pole of optimism, from puritanical strictness to present-day permissiveness. It is necessary to realize this so that the ethos of the Sermon on the Mount can always be sufficiently transparent when it confronts man's actions and behavior. For this purpose, some further analyses are necessary. Condemnation of the body? Manichaeanism. Our reflections about the meaning of Christ's words, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, would not be complete if we did not dwell, at least briefly, on what one could call the echo of these words in the history of human thought and of the evaluation of ethos. Echo is always a transformation of the voice and of the words expressed by the voice. We know from experience that such a transformation is often full of mysterious fascination. In the present case, what happened is rather something contrary. In fact, Christ's words were often stripped of their simplicity and depth, and a meaning was given to them that is far from the one they expressed, a meaning that in the end conflicts with them. What we have in mind here is all that happened on the margins of Christianity under the name of Manichaeanism, and that attempted to enter the terrain of Christianity precisely in the area of the theology and ethos of the body. In its original form, Manichaeanism, which sprang up in the Orient from Masdian dualism, that is, outside the biblical sphere, saw the source of evil in matter, in the body, and therefore condemned all that is bodily in man. And since in man bodiliness manifests itself above all through one's sex, the condemnation was extended to marriage and conjugal life and to all other spheres of being and acting in which bodiliness expresses itself, to an unaccustomed ear, the evident strictness of that system might seem to harmonize with the strict words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, in which Christ speaks about tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand if these members are the cause of scandal. By a purely material interpretation of these expressions, it is even possible to reach a Manichaean view of Christ's statement about the man who has committed adultery in his heart by looking at a woman to desire her. In this case as well, the Manichaean interpretation tends to condemn the body as the true source of evil, because in it, according to Manichaeanism, the ontological principle of evil both conceals and manifests itself. People thus try to discover, and at times they saw, such a condemnation in the gospel, finding it where, on the contrary, the only thing expressed is a particular demand addressed to the human spirit. Note that the condemnation might and may always be a loophole to avoid the requirements set in the gospel by him who knew what was in every man, John chapter 2, verse 25. Proofs are not lacking in history. We have already partially had the opportunity, and will certainly have it again, to show to what degree this demand can only spring from an affirmation, and not from a negation or from a condemnation, if it is to lead to a subjectively and objectively even more mature and deep affirmation. And such an affirmation of the human being's femininity and masculinity as a personal dimension of being a body must guide the words of Jesus according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. This is the correct ethical meaning of these words. They impress on the pages of the gospel a particular dimension of ethos in order to impress this dimension also within human life. We will take up this topic again in our next reflections. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 44th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. For us to better appreciate this 44th Catechesis. It's good to remember where we've been so we know where we are and where we're going. The first part of John Paul II's Theology of the Body focuses on the words of Christ. The first chapter focuses on Christ's appealing to the beginning. He had been asked about the bill of divorce, and he reminded those who asked him then, and even ourselves in our own day, He answered by appealing to the beginning. It was not that way in the beginning. It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses allowed, permitted, the issuance of a decree of divorce. Male and female, he created them in the divine image, he created them. John Paul II reminds us about the good creation. Chapter two, in which this 44th catechesis is found, has Christ appealing to the human heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, I say, do not even look with a disordered desire upon the other, lest you commit adultery in the heart. Christ appeals to the human heart in light of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a very high point in the Sermon on the Mount for Pope John Paul II. The Holy Father has drawn our attention to our fallen nature, the man of concupiscence. He has spoken to us about commandments and ethos, the commandment not to commit adultery the commandment not to covet your neighbor's wife, or as it's better translated perhaps in Spanish, not to do impure acts and not to have impure desires. But in this 44th catechesis, John Paul II makes yet another turn. He focuses our attention on the heart, and he asks the question whether the heart is accused or called. If we remember that the heading of this chapter is Christ-appealing, To the human heart, we may already have the answer. It would seem, Pope John Paul II believes, the heart has been called, accused of sin, no doubt, but called to redemption, called to holiness by none other than Christ Jesus, our Lord, who knows us from the inside out, who has become like us in all things but sin to save, to redeem us from our sins. He is the one who calls us out of the darkness of sin into his own wonderful light. It seems almost a non-starter when Pope John Paul II points out that the words of Christ are demanding. I suppose there are some who say it just doesn't matter, but those are nominalists. Those are people who say nothing means anything. Nothing means nothing. But if that's the case, why are they bothering to speak at all? For the moment one opens one's mouth, there is an intention to communicate something there. And the words of Christ our Lord are not always just the warm and fuzzy, the soothing words, but here, in this case, the demanding words, the challenging words of the gospel, to be pure of heart. He calls us to purity of heart, Do not even look with that disordered desire upon the other. Do not commit adultery in your heart. Sure, do not commit the external act but also be pure of heart. Worship me in spirit and in truth. Glorify God in your body. This is the context of the sure and certain teaching of Christ our Lord. This is the context of the sure and certain teaching of Mother Church. As presented by Pope John Paul II in his 44th Catechesis, Man and Woman, he created them a theology of the body. Pope John Paul II has highlighted what just is interiority, the dimension of the inner man, how it is proper to ethics, and even more so to the theology of the body. When just hearing the phrase theology of the body, we might think it's only fixating on our corporality, our bodilyness. And that is definitely a part of it. But the Pope is reminding us of the importance, at least important, of our interiority. What's going on inside, in my heart, in my mind, in my thoughts, in my desires. That's part of my interiority, your interiority. Because Christ, who calls us to holiness heart to heart, he wants our hearts to be right, our desires to be right, our thoughts to be right. When the Holy Father focuses on ethics reminds us that that is part of his academic background, his training as a professor in the Janglin University, Catholic University of Lublin, University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. The Holy Father focused on ethics, what good to do, what evil to avoid. And here in his Theology of the Body, which is very much a masterwork, very much the mature Voitian corpus we see he has not strayed far from his first love. The Holy Father points out in this 44th Catechesis that the reductive desire springs up in the sphere of the concupiscence of the flesh both an inner reality and a theological reality. So insofar as the reductive desire is coming from the concupiscence of the flesh, flesh, it's an interior desire from the inside, but it's a theological reality, and the root of the word theological is theos, who is God, who is beyond, who is transcendent. Not only the God who has come near us, who has walked the earth as we have, a man among men, who feeds us with his very body and blood, that's very imminent. The word he speaks to us enters into us very deeply, but God is radically other. So the inner reality and the theological reality, which is other, outside of ourselves, drawing us to himself. Some would treat concupiscence and concupiscence of the flesh as only the inner reality. And he addressed how that was a truncated vision in his 43rd catechesis. The Holy Father started off this 44th Catechesis with two questions, which then sort of morphed into six, and I thought it would be good for us to look at those six questions. The first one, Is the Heart Accused? or called to the good. So that's kind of echoing the heading of, of this part of chapter 2. Is the heart accused or called to the good? Of course, the heart is called to the good. And when I fail to do the good, I stand accused. I am my own accuser. Others may accuse me. In the capital, O other, Almighty God, the Lord Jesus himself, when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, he will accuse me and he will judge me. May he be merciful upon me and upon you, because we have sought his mercy in the here and now. We should never wait. We should never put off to tomorrow a good confession we can make today, that we would be found pleasing in the sight of God. Is the heart accused or called to the good? Does it have to be either or? How about both and? Yes, we are guilty of sin. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. But all are called to holiness in Christ Jesus. All are called to sanctity and given the means, the grace, through Mother Church, through faith and baptism, to be saints. The second of the six questions we find in this 44th Catechesis is, in a certain sense, two parts with three conditions. How can someone act? How should someone act? Who? A, accepts Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. B, someone who accepts the ethos of the gospel. C, who accepts it particularly in this area, the area being sexual morality. Sexual ethics. The Holy Father addresses a question because he seeks to know the truth and he seeks to help us, those who would engage with his text, Theology of the Body, those who would hear him speak these words first in Rome. He was of the understanding that we could come to understand, come to know the truth which would set us free. So he asked these questions How can someone act? How should someone act? They're different the ability to act and how one should act. The three conditions. Not everybody accepts Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. But if they do, wait. Someone who accepts the ethos of the gospel, which follows from acceptance of the Sermon on the Mount. If someone doesn't accept the Sermon on the Mount, they're not going to accept the ethics of the gospel, the ethos of the gospel. And the third condition, who accepts the ethos of the gospel found in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in this area. Of sexual morality. Three caveats, and if those three, then the real question how to act? Am I to be pure of heart or not? Am I to have a wolfish glance upon another, or am I to look upon the other as a brother, as a sister in Christ? The third question Pope John Paul II asks us in this 44th Catechesis, and which will pan out in the rest of the work how can he act? That is, on what can he count in his innermost being? at the source of his interior and exterior acts. It's important to remember that one of his earlier works, Person and Act, the acting person it's sometimes translated, focused just on that. Now, Those who are superficially acquainted with John Paul II know of his dramatic background, his work in theater, This is not the sort of acting to which he is referring. What is a human act? An intentional act? Something which is done by a human being interiorly or exteriorly or both? That a human being is digesting? It's not a human act. It's an act which is done in me. I cannot say to my heart, beat, beat, beat. I can hold my breath, but... Even if I should pass out, I begin to breathe again. I don't will the respiration. I do not will the beating of my heart or the digestion of my lunch. These are things which happen in me. But to seek the truth, to speak the truth, to love the truth, these are acts among other acts. That third question again, how can he act? That is, on what can he count in his innermost being at the source of his interior and exterior act? This refers us back to that whole work on the acting person, that one line, that one question. The fourth question, how should he act? That is, how do the values recognized in accord with the scale revealed in the Sermon on the Mount constitute a duty of his will, of his heart, of his desires, and of his choices? Four different parts to that fourth question. It's important to note that the Holy Father mentions here duty. Some people are down on duty. They say we have a duty to disregard duty. We have our responsibilities and we have our rights and God has his rights and God will not be mocked. And it's God who has spoken to us in Christ. Do not commit adultery and do not even look in a disordered way upon the other. Be pure of heart. This is our duty. We who call ourselves followers, of Christ Jesus, the Lord. The Holy Father here in this fourth question makes a distinction between the will, between the heart, between desire and choices. They're all very much related, but they're distinct. The fifth question the Holy Father asks in his 44th catechesis, man and woman, he created them with theology of the body, goes like this. In what way do they oblige him in action and behavior if once they are accepted through knowledge They commit him already in thought and in some way in feeling. Again, we see here, action, act. So it's not just the act of being, although that is the greatest act, one of our greatest acts, which is a gift from God already, but also behavior, knowledge, thought, feeling, some of the key terms in that fifth question, that we're obliged. Here again, the Holy Father is referring to duty. In what way do they oblige him? Do I have a duty to do this? Am I obliged to do the good, to reject the bad? Yes, even as a human being, even before I receive the grace of baptism. But once having received the grace of baptism, all the more do I have reason to do the good. For I have my example in Christ. I have my reward in eternal life on high with him and all the holy saints. If we accept Christ's words in the sermon on the mount. If we accept the ethos of the gospel, if we accept the ethos of the gospel found in the sermon on the mount particularly as regards to sexual ethics, then we have committed ourselves in our thoughts and in our feelings just how it is we are to act. The 6th of the 6 questions found in this 44th catechesis is a beginning of another part of it, and it is a leading question which will be answered later when the Holy Father addresses Manichaeanism. The sixth question is, condemnation of the body? The Manichaeans were heretics, and they did just that. They condemned what was material. They condemned the body. They were Gnostic dualists. And Pope John Paul II has a full page of a footnote all about Manichaeanism, and it's interesting to note, he has three sources he cites, one from 1949, one from 1972, and one from 1977, and he gave the talk 1980, so it was very current scholarship. And in point of fact, you know, the Manichaeans are a very old group, and so hopefully there aren't so many round. although... There are dualists in our day, and the more things change, the more they stay the same. So we could go look up further research, more current bibliography regarding Manichaeanistic heresy, but the Holy Father has a very fine presentation in his footnote about them. The Holy Father, needless to say, is not a Manichaean. He is not a Gnostic dualistic heretic, contrasting matter and spirit as if all matter is evil, and only the Spirit is good. The Holy Father recognizes that all of creation, seen and unseen, corporeal and spiritual, all has its origin in the good God, who saw all that he had made and saw that it was good. That was the first part of the theology of the body when Christ appeals to the beginning. John Paul II likewise returned us to the opening chapters of Genesis. When Pope John Paul addresses these six questions or brings them up for our consideration, he points out that these questions are significant for human praxis, practical application, the way we live our lives. He's not just creating an ivory tower or a fantastic thought algorithm. He wrote what he wrote and he spoke what he spoke as part of his own human praxis. He felt moved himself that he had to do this and he freely undertook it. These questions are significant for human praxis, and they indicate an organic link between praxis itself and ethos. So the ethos is more the theory, and the praxis is the doing. They need not be mutually exclusive. And in point of fact, we see how beautifully they hang together in the Holy Father's thought, not just in this 44th catechesis, man and woman, he created them a theology of the body, but throughout the work thus far. The Holy Father further shows his hand as an ethicist, as a student and teacher of morality, when he says a living morality is always the ethos of human praxis. That's an aphorism, it's an axiom a win pearl of great price, a living morality, so not a dead letter, not a formalistic morality, but a living morality, living because we live it, and living because the morality of the church is the morality of Christ, who dies no more, in whom we live and move and have our being. And if the truth will set us free then our lives are truly free. A living morality is always the ethos of human praxis. So we want to have good praxis and good ethos. And we do that by following Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who when approached by the young man who called him a good teacher, the Lord said what? Why is it that you call me good? Only God is good. The Lord did not deny his own divinity. He was calling for yet a further act of faith. He was revealing his own divinity. In this 44th Catechesis, John Paul II does something which you don't see in many magisterial texts. He actually makes a precision regarding a particular passage of sacred scripture. John Paul says, that the correct ethical meaning of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, are given here. So, while not every verse of every chapter of every book of sacred scripture has been spoken on definitively by the magisterium, at least in its ethical meaning, and there are other spiritual senses, the allegorical and the anagogical, here the Holy Father is focusing on the tropological sense, the ethical sense. What good should we do? What evil should we avoid? The Holy Father here does not address the literal meaning of the words, but they seem clear enough. Ponder these things, and until next time, God bless you.